You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. This is your host, Alonso Osorio, and I'm super excited to record the next few episodes regarding some questions that I have been asked through our close group in WhatsApp and in some of our social networks regarding the significant anxiety that has been created around the USMLE and the recent changes that will be implemented. To talk about this topic, I found myself probably somebody reliable to bring into the show who could speak to us regarding reliable source of information that will take down the myths because the information sometimes that people are getting out there from the social networks and social media and social platforms is not the most reliable ones all at once sometimes. And I want to calm the fears and give the foreign medical graduates, the international medical graduates, and in general, the medical student and medical applicants community to graduate medical education in the United States some peace of mind and to be calm, be relaxed about the fact that it's not as bad as it sounds. So today, Dr. Ricardo Rafael Correa Marquez who is a foreign medical grad. He's currently the program director of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism fellowship, and the director of diversity in graduate medical education at the very well-renowned University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix, where he is also a staff endocrinologist at the Phoenix Veteran Hospital. Specifically, when we talk about Dr. Ricardo Rafael Correa, I wish I had so many degrees and so many accolades, as I said earlier before, he's remarkably accomplished. I can go through his uh, resume and easily I could go through 20 pages of significant research and non-research publications and a significant amount of training. He actually goes back with me all the way to the Jackson Memorial Hospital slash University of Miami Latin American training programs where I was part of and he actually came through this program and he went through the internal medicine residency so we have that in common and we also have the same people that we kind of this process with Miss Lina Navarro, Barbara Breto, uh, Jesse Blake he got to know them and, and last night we spent about an hour just kind of going over the topics that we wanted to cover today in the show and we really enjoy ourselves so after he finished in Miami he headed to the NIH in Bethesda, where he did his fellowship, and now he's practicing clinical medicine, and he's remarkably involved in graduate medical education. He will talk to us about the application process, 
what is anything related with IMGs, FMGs, and uh, academics. He actually has help uh, in creations of questions and still does help creating questions for the USMLE itself and is part of academic societies that are remarkably important and that supervise the USMLE itself. USMLE, for those that are not aware, is the United States Medical Licensing Examination. Ricardo also, not only he is the endocrine program director, but he's also a member of the National Board of Medical Examiners, or NBME. And he's also part of the Academic Council for Graduate Medical Education, or what we call the ACGME. He has been also heavily involved in the past and currently in the American Medical Association, AMA, IMG, and FMG Governing Council. And he has been since residency training and for the last 10 years helping people like us to make it in America. He is super excited and he's a remarkable wealth of knowledge. He's extremely proficient about this topic and we welcome him to the show today. So welcome Dr. Uh, Ricardo Correa Marquez. Thank you for being here with us today and we're going to do the show today in English. I know that many of our listeners are Spanish speaking but we can actually take advantage of this show to visit the podcast from Pluripotenciales, Pluripotential in English, but it's Pluripotenciales, P-L-U-R-I-P as in Paul, O-T-E-N-C-I-L-E-S dot com. And they actually have very recently released podcasts as a bonus episode regarding the changes that have been recently uh, done with the USMLE. And just go to their website on pluripotenciales.com and you'll find very lengthy, about an hour long interview also with Dr. Ricardo that goes into details for those of our listeners that would like to hear most of the information in the, what I call, a Spanish version. For the last week or so, I've been going into YouTube and I've been getting some significant emails coming through my inbox regarding these changes of the USMLE. And this article that I'm talking about is located at the Medscape Family Medicine page, and it's called Momentus, USMLE Change, the new pass-fail format that is stunts medicine. And one of the most important things that is being said on this uh, article is that they quote Dr. Brian Carmody, C-A-R-M-O-D-I, MD, Master in Public Health, who is an assistant professor at Eastern Virginia Medical Center in Norfolk, Virginia, states, quote unquote, this is considered actually, this changes, is the single biggest opportunity for medical school education reform since the Flexner Report which was established in 1910-1910 that pretty much uh, was responsible for establishing the standards for modern medical education in the United States. To give you a little bit of background, USMLE has some co-sponsors that we have spoken already about and it's important to know who are the players on this situation and we're talking about the Federation State of uh, Medical Boards, or FSMB, and the National Board of Medical Examiners, or NBME, which is a group not only formed by academicians, psychologists, 
statistics people, also they have medical students, residents, foreign graduates, American graduates, so it's a big conglomerate of people that get together in a specific setting at this institution headquarters and they have remarkable academic discussions on how the testing process and medicine is going to be shaped in the United States. Having said that, I'm ready to begin the show. We're going to have shortly Dr. Ricardo Correa, and we're going to be talking about so many topics and so many questions that I have. I actually have some questions from our listeners in Colombia, South America, that are specifically related with this USMLE and what's going to be like the transition in between the year of 2021 overlapping with the match happening in uh, February slash March of 2022. And there is fears about who's going to be getting evaluated over the three-digit number versus the pass and fail score. What's going to happen? Is this going to be harsh on the foreign medical guys? So all those questions are going to be tried to be resolved and uncovered by our co uh, guest and, and colleagues. So welcome, Dr. Correa. Thank you for coming to the show. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Osorio. We are a pleasure to be here with you, and I really admire all the work that you do for the IMG community and uh, all of this podcast has been listening and following you in Facebook. So really, thank you so much for the opportunity. So to tell you a little bit about uh, me, I'm originally from Panama, and uh, I came and I did uh, internal medicine, then endocrinology, and I started practicing uh, first in Rhode Island. Right now, I'm the program director for the Endocrine Fellowship and the Director for Diversity and Graduate Medical Education for the University of Arizona in Phoenix. So one of the things that I have been since I arrived in the U.S. and been very interested is in medical education with a special focus in graduate medical education. And during my journey in, in this country, I have been involved with several organizations, uh, some of them like the ACGME, the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education with the National Board of Medical Examiners, some committees from the National Board of Medical Examiners. I have been very involved with organized medicine from national like the American Medical Association to American College of Physicians for Internal Medicine and, and others. So all of this with the purpose of, of trying to make a change in, in medical education and with uh, other organizations, mainly with the main objective of improving medical education with a special focus on graduate medical education. That's the journey that I had this time in the U.S. So um, that's a little bit in summary what I'm doing right now and where I'm coming from. Got it. Yesterday we spoke for about an hour on the phone and I wanted to probably rehearse what we said yesterday about a little bit of the background of what's the USMLE. And what we want to uncover here briefly is uh, what our listeners probably don't know is the USMLE licensing processes started many, many, many years ago, decades ago, and it has been established to standardize the medical education in the United States, specifically to kind of put everybody at the same level and at the same standard when it was recording about how proficient were the physicians of the U.S. So. Yesterday, we were talking that we go back to uh, several years and actually different denominations for the test back then. Yes. So it's, it's very important to, when we talk about the USMLE, to understand the, the history of the, of the USMLEs. So um, back 
in the 80s or the beginning of the 90s, there were several different exams. One for the U.S. medical graduates that was were called like NBME. Another for the international medical graduates that were called FLEX. In the mid-90s, they decided to do one only exam and they for licensing in the U.S. And then they call this exam USMLE. So the two parents organization of the USMLE is the National Board of Medical Examiners and the Federation State Medical Boards. So the National Board of Medical Examiners, everybody thinks that that's the ones that create the USMLE, but it's not the only one. So the National Board of Medical Examiners do many other things. It's not just USMLEs. They have other products. They have international exams. They have uh, other exams for other areas, not just medicine. And the Federation State Medical Boards is like the federation of all the state boards. So each state to practice medicine have something that we call a medical licensing board and different from state to state and there's different requirements and all of that. All of that uh, medical licensing board are under one federation that is called the FSNB. And both organizations, FSNB and NBME, came together to form this United States Licensed Medical Exams, the USMLE. Correct. The ECFMG, that is the organization that certify international medical graduates, is not a parent organization of the USMLE, but is very closely related with the USMLE and they participate actively. So even if it's not a parent organization, it's very related to the USMLEs. So it's very important to understand how these three organizations work together and how the USMLE uh, got into the two of them. After that, so when they originate the USMLE, they originate this as a licensing exam. As an any licensing exam, you want to know what are the minimal requirements that you need to practice something. In this case, to practice medicine. I can compare this to a driver license. When you want to take a driver license, you have to take an exam. The exam doesn't matter how much is your score. The, what it matters is that you have the minimum requirements to drive. And if you pass, then you get your license for driving. The same thing is the original mission or conception of the USMLE. That was the minimal requirement that a student, and when I call student, I, I'm mentioning students in the U.S. or physicians that are coming from the outside, the minimal requirement that they need to practice in medicine in the United States. So that was how it was envisioned. That is the the main uh, goal of the, of the exam. Of course, with time, there were unintended consequences that start coming from this original mission of, of the exam. There was a scoring system and the program directors start using that scoring system for selecting uh, for their residency. That was not the original mission of the exam, but that was an unintended consequences that the program director decided that this was an objective measure for uh, doing the, the selection process. Selection process, correct. That was why it was created. Got it. Let, 
everybody, just I want to make a disclaimer. Despite the fact that uh, Dr. Correa belongs to all these organizations, this is just his personal experience and by no means is affiliated as a individual opinion from the institutions that he has collaborated with, correct? Correct, yes. And I, thank you for, for, for clarifying that. This is my personal opinion, nothing to do with any of the organization that I have belonged or that I belong with, yes. Awesome. Yeah, so we have these parent organizations, and I just really you wanted to touch base on that because many people, when they want to come into the U.S., they get remarkably overwhelmed about who are these players and, and what position they have in my certification process. So are all these organizations what we call in the United States for-profit or non-for-profit? And how are they funded? Correct. So these organizations uh, are non-for-profit organizations that they are funded by several ways. And one of the ways that uh, these organizations are funded, for example, the National Board of Medical Examiners will be uh, through the, all the programs that they offer. And one of them is the USMLE. This is not the only one. There is multiple others. There are uh, several other programs that uh, they offer. They have an international exam. They, they have multiple other things, even not related to medicine, coaching, and, and other things. So that's the word, how they fund it. The FSMB is funded by the medical boards, by the state medical boards, that they have to pay a fee to belong to this federation. And that's how, how the, the FSMB works. And it's because they decided that they have to have a, all the states have to have a federation that regulates a little bit. Every state have the, their own independence that regulate the licensing processes in the United States. They have in, some independence, but there are some rules that all of them apply. So they are both non-for-profit. The ECFMG is another non-for-profit organization. Uh, basically, besides regulating the uh, um, international medical graduates and all of that process that we do with the ECFMG, they have other products. They have the FAMER, that's the is the Federation of Medical Education, International Medical Education, that is located in multiple countries, and they do a lot of things with other countries too. So yes, Ricardo, since you touched that uh, point, one of our listeners from Colombia sent me actually a question regarding the concerns that not all the medical schools in Colombia, when I left my country, we had, let's say, 10. Right now, there might be 30, 40. They have overwhelmingly populated the country on medical schools of different qualities, different standards, different length of uh, establishment. But specifically, the question goes like this. And they quote a little paragraph and a statement from the medical school accreditations requirements from the SAECFMG. And as of 2023, they're going to establish different parameters in which some of the medical locations listed in the international directory as of now might not be listed there in the future because they probably are not meeting the requirements to be considered to be even eligible to sit down to take the test if you are a student that had graduated from those medical schools. Am I correct or? Yes. So this is a very important topic different from the original, but I want to clarify also this because this is very important. So what happened is this, right now, the medical schools enter unclear process 
on to get into a list called the list, uh, the international list of medical school or something like that. Unclear process. And this is managed by the World Federation of Medical Education, the WFME. So what happened is that to make it a, a little bit more um, standardized and consistent, the World Federation of Medical Education, now what they want to do is nothing to do with the ECCMG. Is the World Federation of Medical Education, what they want to do is do accreditation of medical school because there is an increase of medical schools in the world. Got it. So the accreditation can be in multiple ways. If your country is a big country, like, for example, I can put you Mexico as an example. In Mexico, there is uh, so many medical schools that they have a National Accreditation Council of Medical Schools. Yes. Colombia, uh, Panama, and Venezuela, they are developing a Council of Accreditation for Medical School among the three countries. Just because they were small, so they think that it's better, it's less expensive to have an accreditation council that have more regional Probably Central America will do the same thing. The Caribbean is doing the same thing. Some other country will do that. This accreditation body will be recognized by the World Federation of Medical Educations. And then if this accreditation body is recognized by the World Federation of Medical Education, the ECPMG will recognize any of the universities or medical schools that are coming from these accreditation bodies. The ECFMG doesn't care how the accreditation body is formed. It doesn't care how the accreditation process in the different regions are done. What they care is that there is an accreditation body that is recognized by the World Federation of Medical Education, and then they will recognize that. So they are not involved in accreditation anything. So if it's PCMG, will not be involved in accredited medical schools. That's not the, the purpose of, of accreditation 2023. Important. What they want is that region or national or locally, there is an accreditation body that will accredit medical schools. And if this is recognized by the World Federation of Medical Education, if it's ECVMG, will recognize them. So I have heard, for example, people that says, oh, I will not be able to practice in the U.S. because my medical school have some deficiency in things like whatever. That's not true. If the accreditation council for that region or that country recognize that medical school, that's it. You can, ECFMG will recognize it immediately. So it's, it's just a process that certain regions all countries have to be start doing, and it's not just to come to the U.S. It's to improve the medical education in their own countries, because accreditation have to happen in at the level of the university and at the level of medical school to have a standardized base, standardized of who train in, in medicine. As you mentioned, medical school is a business, so multiple medical school has been reproducing in the entire world. And sometimes these medical schools have no way of teaching. They, they produce physicians that are, doesn't know anything. 
So having an accreditation system that will benefit the medical community in the country, in the region, that is what the process is. Wow, this, the only this thing is awesome. that ECFMG is doing is just recognizing that. But nothing to do with ECFMG and coming to the U.S. It's not Got for it. you for ECFMG and coming to the U.S. Okay. This clarification that you make really kind of makes me more calm and obviously makes me understand a little bit better of what's the role of every different institution. So I interrupted you with this sudden question that when you brought up the name of the ECFMG. So we went back, we have the Federation State Medical Board, the National Board of Medical Examiners, and along with the USMLE, uh, they get together and they make decisions regarding medical educations in the United States, right? So, yes. So, if you look at this, in the top will be the parents' organization, NBME and FSMB. And one of the committees of these two organizations is called USMLE. So, in the USMLE, they are people from the NBME and from the FSNB, and then they get together. So it's under them, and they are in charge of assessment and licensing in the U.S. So Perfect. that is a part of the pie that we call edu medical education. It's not the entire medical education, but it's a part of that pie. Got it. And uh, trying to get now into the deeper reason and the core of our interview today, which is uh, talking about these new changes that have been implemented by the USMLE through their parents' organizations and how this will affect or not our listeners. Uh, there were mainly three recommendations. Number one, uh, as of 2022, the USMLE uh, step one will be rated only as a pass-fail score instead of what is right now, a three-digit score. And two, there is going to be decrease on the amount of attempts that a person is allowed to, the requirements went from taking uh, or uh, that the step three will remain a three-digit score and the amount of attempts will be decreased from six to four per exam, correct? Correct, yes. And so let me start with the other two and then we can go to the the first one that is the one that have caused more, uh, more anxiety and impact. So the recommendation that says that uh, it's going from six attempts to four attempts basically is based on data. There is data that shows that after the third attempt on any of the steps, your possibility of passing decreased dramatically and probably it will be 3% to 3 to 4% only to pass. So uh, if you do a graph, you can see that uh, how many people pass in the first attempt, then it decreased to the second attempt then it decreased more to the third attempt. And after that, it plateaued in a very low range. Got so it. That's the main reason why they went to six to four. Even it was the number correct was three, because that's when they, they don't see a change after three, four, five, and six. They decided to put one more. And they say, okay, let's do four. If we think about numbers, most likely 20 people have, will be affected. 
that's the amount of people that pass the exam in the fourth, fifth, or sixth attempt. Yes, it's minimal compared with the amount of people that apply to the exam at the beginning. So, so really, if you see the cost benefit is like after the four attempt, the, really the possibility of passing the, the exam is very low. And the other thing is that there is a lot of unintended consequences or bad consequences of opening this exam and then there are people that can do whatever with this exam. So there are people that just continue doing the exam to get uh, questions from the exam. So you're opening yep. the exam, not really for the good reasons. That's why they decided to go from six to four. And there's data behind this. Uh, there's so what, what you're saying is probably people that are sitting to take the test that are not necessarily interested on in passing the test is just about stealing the data bank and sort of, you know surveilling the, the test and what modifications have been done. Correct. Correct. It's not. I'm saying that everybody's doing that, but if you yeah, see yeah. that after the four attempt. There is minimal, like the, your possibility of passing the test is minimum. There is a lot of risk that you open the test and then it can escape one of the questions. And your your likelihood of passing is very low. Got it. So that was with the, the reason for six to two. The second reason, the second uh, recommendation was... Six, six down to four, correct? Six, six to, four. to four, sorry. Six, six to four, yes, correct. Uh, the second recommendation was that for doing the step two CS, you have to have one of the steps that are medical knowledge. And that is, is coming also from data that is the majority of the people that take the test, they do one of the steps before taking the CS. I know that many of the, of the IMG community thinks that they do the CS first and then they do all, all of the others uh, because that's what you have seen in your friends or something like that. But in reality, when you put this into a, the database, even in the IMG or the US medical graduate community, in both of them, people take first any of the medical knowledge test and then they take the CS. And then this is important because the majority of the other countries that have a CS or a clinical skills assessment test, you have to have prerequisite that is to have a medical knowledge test before. This change was not because they don't want IMGs in the country. It's mainly because for the benefit of the applicants, usually it's good to have medical knowledge before clinical assessment. And the other thing is that also unintended consequences. There are people that do the CS not because they want to come to practice in the U.S. is because they want just to obtain the cases. So, wow. so the most important thing here is this is a small amount of people that do that. But the most important thing is that the data show that the majority of the IMGs and U.S. medical graduates take a medical knowledge exam, meaning step one or step two CK, before taking CS. And CS, that is a clinical assessment, should have a prerequisite that is a little bit of medical knowledge. Because the other thing is that will save a lot of, uh, of, for example, money on people that 
take the CS, probably they pass, but they never pass the step one and step two. Got it. And, and that's, that's a problem. So first, you have to take a medical knowledge exam, so then they can assess your clinical uh, uh, assessment mainly. Skill, the clinical skills. Correct. Since we're talking about the clinical skills assessment, what led to the USMLE and ECFMG to make the clinical skills assessment exam? I don't know if you remember the CSA that there were only two testing centers and one testing center in Philadelphia and Market Street back in my days, 20 years ago when I took it. And only the foreign medical grads were meant to take it. But the Americans had something in medical school called the OSCE, OS, the OSCE. Yes, and then they decided to implement the CK also, the not the CK, the clinical skills for everybody across the United States. Do you think they did this with a monetary incentive since it's such an expensive test or it was just to, they realized that it's actually a good test and there was data suggesting that everybody else should take it that way? Correct. And this is another, another topic that is very important. So the CS at the beginning was done just for international medical graduates. But then they realized that there is a lot of variation between U.S. Uh, medical schools in the way that they score or that they, the, the student present OSCE. There was a movement uh, in, from the medical students probably three or four years ago to go back again and say, this is a very expensive test, we want to go back that to the, the test to go to our medical schools. The big problem is that you have to standardize this among every medical school in the U.S. And not every medical school have the same ability to standardize their standard patients and their OSCE. So the conclusion at the end was that the best way to have an objective measure that that person is capable to practice medicine using the step two CS was standardizing this in one 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 test under the USMLE umbrella and not giving that back to the to the medical schools. Yes. Still some discussion from the students, but really we cannot compare in the US also one medical school to another. It will take a lot of time and a lot of money to do standardize among every medical school. So the CS continue to be for U.S. medical graduates as IMGs because that's the best way to standardize. It's nothing to do with money. If you think about the revenue from the step two CS is very low for the ECFM, for the sorry for the NBME. Is because it costs a lot of money to have a, an exam like that. One, you have to pay the standardized patient, you have to pay the space, you have to pay the time of the staff. A lot of the money, uh, I know that it's a costly exam, but uh, you can go to the webpage of the NVME and see how much they spent on this test that probably the revenue do not is probably 5% or less. Even though they think from the community, and I have been in, in, talking with medical students in the U.S., is that this is they want to make money, and that's mm -hmm. why they, they have done this test. Really, the test costs a lot of money. They, really, the test costs a lot of money, 
because you have to standardize all of the things. And plus, there is a lot of staff behind, psychometrician, people that exceeded the exam and all of this that are involved in the process. So really, it's nothing about money. It's about trying to get the best standard test possible that can predict patient care and patient safety. So and that's I, why the CSS is about. I hear a very common topic in our conversation. So these institutions in the United States, like any other institution, obviously is looking for two things. One, the wellness of the patients. Number one, protect the patients by doing what? Making sure that the immigrants and medical students from the U.S. and immigrant physicians talking about IMGs, FMGs, when they come to America, have the minimal knowledge necessary that meets this standard. And it's not a standard that is, has to be set by someone. So and an accreditation institution like this one is good to be had because they actually are telling us, doctors, you need to know this before you do that. And it makes very much sense that you're explaining us by saying that they want to make sure that you have the most basic knowledge first before you move into taking uh, clinical skills examination. So you need to have step one to summarize and you have to have a step two clinical knowledge before you take the clinical skills assessment test later on, correct? One of the two before. Like, one of the two. Have, yeah, you don't have to have the two of them. Usually in the U.S., the way that they do it is that they start with step one in the first two years of the career and then step two in the third and fourth year of the career and then they go to CS. So so that's the way. IMGs do it differently. Some of them do it that way. Others do it the other way. But at least now to do the CS, you have to have one or two. Got it. It doesn't back, matter the order. Back in my day, uh, I remember that you only had four years after having had graduated from medical school to be able to sit down for the boards, for the steps. Is that is that still a valid statement? No. Since you start the process, you have seven years to finish the three exams, including step one, step two, CK, and step two, CS. So since you start the process, it's nothing to do with your year of graduation of your medical school is whenever you start the process. That's when the clock start. Got it. Perfect. Good to clarify that. So, uh, Ricardo, yesterday when we were talking, we were saying that this is really shaking and reshaping the way medical education is being reconsidered and seen in the United States. And obviously, anywhere in the world, any change in any type of profession, in any career, anywhere, uh, even in construction, any change leads to fear, misconceptions, public uh, panic that has led to some misleading information in social media and, and, and has led for some for some overwhelmed fear of what's going to be in the future because we actually heard this uh, bulletin published in the webpage of the USMLE, but I personally tried to reach out to the USMLE. I get redirected to the and. BME and, and I have not gotten quite an answer yet and I, I think the way I perceive this is that the way they're saying this is that they have to be really careful about how they're going to move forward for the next 24 or 48 months on implementing this process, correct? Correct. So if we talk about this big change that uh, the other two, I think that uh, they are reasonable, they have not come into a big uh, 
discussion I have not seen in the social medias or anyone else discussing about the other twos that they were personally I think that these two first two uh, recommendations that is changing from six to four there was a lot of evidence on it and then taking step one or two before the CS they were a good recommendation is this last one recommendation the one that have created some more anxiety and that's the main reason that I, I wanted to talk to you uh, and try to explain why this anxiety it's happening and why we have to have some hope so as you mentioned any change bring many things with it and bring anxiety and bring some concepts that really are, are not true this is uh, one of the biggest changes that have happened in medical education in the last probably 50 years and this change what it's going to, to do is one is is shaking it's created an earthquake let's say like this in medical education so people that are brilliant and people that are involved in medical education can make better the transition between undergraduate medical education to graduate medical education and that's the main thing if you think about that there have been some changes in the usmle's first uh, there was a change that changed from two digit to three digits. Yes, I remember. Uh, this was like several years ago because there was a misunderstanding from the program director's standpoint of view that if you have a two digit, you were in the 99 percentile. If you get a 99, you were in the 99 percentile of the people. And yes. that was not true. So they were selecting people. In my time, they were selecting people that, oh, you have more than uh, if you are in the 99 and you, there were people more than 98 or 99. So then when they realized, USMLE realized that this was a misinterpretation of the results, they decided to go to three digits. So that was a change. But of course, it was not so big as this change that is happening right now. Right now, what they are saying is that step one, that is not, have not predictability of any clinical competencies is changing to become a licensing exam, is to become a pass or fail exam. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and why this is happening is for several reasons. Uh, one of the things that uh, the USMLE tried to guarantee besides the patient care and patient safety is wellness in the medical students. And again, I refer students can, as US medical graduates, and I know that uh, many international medical grad are not students, but let me refer to them as students. So yeah. there is a, a lot of stress that step one costs to the point that you can see many of these students having burnout during the few months that they are uh, studying for the test. They were not paying attention to the classes. They were learning just how to pass the test really that's not the intention of going to a medical school. The intention of going to a medical school is to learn medicine. It's not to learn to pass an exam. There are some medical schools outside the US in some countries that just prepare the students to pass the USMLEs. And that should not be the way. Like you should prepare a person to become a physician and it's different to pass an exam or not. So because of all of this stress, 
caused by this uh, anxiety caused by this exam, they decided that, okay, let's move the step one. That is the, up to now, has been the main uh, um, filter. filter. Yes, the main filter for residency. And that's why they cause a lot of stress because that is the exam that will decide the future of, of your career. Let's move it and then probably let's put more weight on a more predicted exam that is the step to CK, that is the clinical competency. So it's the one that uh, address more the clinical. I know that uh, the way that up to now we have been dealing with uh, the application process is that step one is the filter and then uh, the other things are just components, but they don't put a lot of effort on this. But we have now the opportunity to restructure that system that, in my personal opinion, was broken. Okay. I really don't believe that a exam that sometimes is based on your ability to take an exam can predict if you are a very good or bad physician. I personally have no people that are amazing physicians that I will refer my parents to them but they have obtained a, a bad score in the exam. And bad score meaning not the 260, the 270 that everybody wants, but they didn't obtain that, that score and their career are truncated because of that. Yeah. And also I know people that I will never refer a patient or a family, but they are very good test-taking uh, persons and they obtain 260 and they are in practicing or doing residency. The other thing is that, uh, so it's step one, that is the preclinical test, is not predictable of clinical competency or clinical abilities. Uh, Other thing that happened was, for example, people, medical students that wanted to do some of the highly competitive um, specialty programs, specialties, uh, they uh, do the step one and they didn't obtain it to 60 that they want. So then they say like, oh, I will never enter to that very competitive specialty. So I will go to a less competitive one and I will do, for example, family medicine or internal medicine. So you truncate also the hope or whatever that person always in their life wanted just because of an exam. And I think that that's not fair for a medical student, U.S. medical grad or international medical grad. Ricardo, and that happened to me, actually, my scores were not like superb. I passed, I passed with decent, I would say 75th, 80th percentile back then. And I wanted to become a board certified residency trained emergency physician, but I, I only got interviews with family medicine. I had to settle for less. And I tell you the truth, my ego was hurting. I never felt comfortable right. in my clothes. I never feel completely satisfied until I actually got in, in the residency of my choice and it's all because the step one did not offer me the doors to be able to apply to these highly competitive specialties. Yeah, so you are the perfect example of why I was personally in disagreement of taking an exam as a filter because your passion was always in uh, emergency medicine. To the point that besides doing a family medicine residency, you continue with that passion that you did another residency. Correct. Because that was your passion. So why we have to truncate the passion of people 
depending on just one one score of one exam. As human, we are not scores. We are complete. We have many components. We have competencies. And the system, the transition system, should be based on competencies. I should care about medical knowledge, that this is the score, but also patient care, but also professionalism. Yes. I don't care if you are a 270, but you are the very bad professional person. Communication skills. I also want a physician that have several communication skills. I want a physician that know how to remove uh, or to improve the system. This is system-based learning and practice-based learning. So the six core competencies that ACGME have and then now the a American Board of Medical Specialty will have also, and the medical school already have, whenever this transition goes from one to another, you, you should be evaluated completely. As a whole. As a whole. Now that you have a news that says, okay, step one is going to pass or fail. To be only pass or fail. Pass no. or fail. That's, that's what's creating anxiety. Correct. So to certain points, uh, there are different opinions. And one is like, from the program director's standpoint of view, how do I filter now the, the, the applicants? Uh, yeah. Because they receive, in certain specialties, they receive 3,000, 5,000, 6,000 applications. How do I filter that? From the medical student standpoint of view, they are saying, oh, the only thing that they are doing is moving now my anxiety from the first years of medical school to the last years of medical school because now step two will become a the exam for filtering. From the IMG standpoint of view, what I have heard is they want, they don't want any more IMGs. That's why they are doing this. And nothing of this is, is, is true. I think that since long time ago, the medical education system in this country needed a change and needed a way that you can enter to a residency in a more holistic way. And this, until now, the status quo was continued. I think that this uh, step that the USMLE did, to say, you know something, let's do pass and fail and make a parenthesis to tell you how this happened, yeah, yeah. didn't start one year ago. This started like three years ago when there was a conversation of the USMLEs to see if the step one was pass or fail. It started a conversation in the committees. And then last year in March, they did something called the INCUS. There was a meeting where different stakeholders came, the two parents' organization, NB and FSNB, the ECFMG as a collaborator, uh, the American Medical Association as the uh, main organized medicine system in the country, and the American Association of Medical College as the representative from the medical schools, and the ACGME as the representative of graduate medical education. All wow. of them have a meeting. There were 14 invitations. They have a meeting. And there were many things that were asked on that, on that meeting, and they came with a report. This report was presented to the USMLE. And then besides this, this report uh, was pub make, make it public 
for public comments that probably still in the web page. I have not seen, I have not looked in the web page of the NBME, but was for public comments for a long period of time, three or four months, where anyone, IMGs, U.S. Medical Graduate Programs Director, Organized Medicine, uh, faculties, uh, medical students, anyone can make comments. And then oh. they review all of these comments, they put together all of these comments, and they came with a conclusion from all of these comments, and then they uh, decided finally. So it was not a decision from the night to day. It was a decision that took at least three years from hearing from every stakeholder. I can tell you from one of the organizations that I'm involved, that is involved multiple programs director, that organization sent a letter that they were opposing the pass and fail, mainly because of the programs director community didn't like the idea. Got it. Uh, but there was a period of time that everybody was able to send their opinion and everybody was able to, to be heard. Got and it. at the end, they make the conclusion when all the all of this opinion and all of this, that the best thing to do was pass or fail. I know that caused anxiety, but I has a lot of hope that this will restructure the way that the people are being selected into residency. Uh, one of big example is how now OBGYN a recent article published in like three or four weeks ago in JAMA, if somebody want to look at it, the main, the principal author is called Dr. Maya Hamoud. They talk about how they are doing to select people in OBGYN and they are expanding that program that they established in the University of Michigan to the entire country and the AMA gave them an award of $1.75 million to do this. So there are certain specialties that we're preparing for this change. So OBGYN is one of them. I can tell you that in internal medicine already when, when this was published last week, there is already a group of people that are, are, are being coming together to make a change and see how can we do a better transition. So what is happening is something good. Brilliant people in medical education are thinking. They are away from the status quo and they are trying to create a better way to evaluate the person as a person and not as a score. Many people are mad because of this. Yes, change causes anxiety and, and stress. There are companies that get uh, money. They profit from these training you for passing the test, correct? Correct. They profit. So, and these are saying many of the things, but there is an opportunity now to make it better. I don't have a magic ball to say, hey, this will, what is happening will make it better, but at least we are trying to make it better. Something that I have heard is like, yes, we are taking the only objective part of the process out. Why we cannot come with another objective part of the process? That doesn't have to be an exam. I understand that the letters, the Dean letters, now everybody is like on the top 5% because all the medical school want to put their, their student in residency. 
and that make um, uh, in the letters of the dean letters. Uh, this is the in the five percentile of the students that I have. So the one hundred students are in the five percent, and yeah. that's not true. But Just... now that you have to change that, you have to go to the deans, and you have to go to the medical schools and tell them, well, you have to change the way that you are addressing your dean letter. You have to go to the clerkship and say, not everybody is outstanding. Please start telling the truth. You will have, as in any bell curve, you will have two standard deviation to the right, two standard deviation to the left, and a average people. The medical school need to start changing on that. So then the other part is that the letter of recommendation, I know that people say, yes, if you are lucky and you got a nice attending, they will have a better letter of recommendation than others. Well, that's something subjective that should say your personal statement is something subjective, but uh, you can make things uh, more objective to be coming to the par. For example, step two. At this point, I think that step two will become the filter. Wow. Um, it, it's not the ideal thing, but at this point, at the beginning, probably the step two will become the filter because there are studies that shows that step two have more clinical predictability than step one. Got it. Uh, so yes, probably step two become the filter, but let's do certain things. For something that I would like to see is that in if, in if step two, you get a percentage per area, how, how you did in that area. For example, let's see internal medicine, OBGYN surgery. And then that can also be added to the entire process. Let's see if you get a 90 percentile in internal medicine and a 40 percentile in OBGYN and a 60 or 70 percentile in surgery, then the people that are selecting say, hey, you know, this person want to come to internal medicine and there is in a 90 percentile in the section of internal medicine. It doesn't matter the score, but you know that that person has passion for that area that they want. And there is a restructuring of, of course, letters of recommendations. There is a restructuring of CVs and all of that. Yes. Ricardo, sorry. And for, for all our listeners, this is extremely important. Some of you asked me, okay, Dr. Osorio, we pass step one, we don't get a three-digit score, how are we going to get filtered? I mean, it seems that as emphasis as you have said, it's going to be placed on a step two. But what about me? I'm a foreign medical graduate. I don't have a dean's letter as it is, you know. We, I don't have uh, any prestigious letters of recommendations from a American doctor that is affiliated to a fantastic American university that will put me in the fifth percentile top of performance and I don't have core clerkships done in the United States that have given me like top rated scores. Do you think I'm at a disadvantage as a foreign medical graduate coming into America, not having all that that already the US grads have? Yes, so I don't think so. And why I don't think so is because right now, what we are thinking is what we have. And this is what I'm, I'm trying to sell is like, what we have right now is the things that we need to change. I believe that there's a lot of brilliant people in medical education that can come with a solution that will be an objective solution. I don't have a magic ball. I have my personal opinion on how this, this uh, system should be done. 
that will be fair for IMGs and for U.S. medical graduates. But I want to see what is the, the rest of the community thinking. I believe that at the beginning, if we just put the effort on a step two, at the beginning, most likely there will be a transition period where the IMGs will have a little bit more advantage over others. Really? Why, yeah, why I say this is because one of the things is that IMGs usually do a lot much better in step two than in step one. That's correct. So, so they will have higher scores. In the, so that filter that didn't make you go into a residency because your step one was not so good because you do you did your step one six, seven years after you finished preclinical years. Yes. Then And then in our countries talking about Latin America, we have to do internships. So we are very clinical person. So we know a lot of clinical things. So step two, it's better. Uh, The second thing is that usually nowadays, and because every day is more competitive, we have been seeing that more IMGs come with more things, with publications, with presentations, with involvement on things. I have seen many applications of people that are like going into their rural areas and just helping with uh, so many of these things that sometimes the U.S. medical graduates, because it's a four-year and they need after the four-year to go immediately into residency they don't have. So there will be probably a transition where the IMGs will be a little bit advantaged, but then this will be equiparated and and it will be like right now. So there will not be an advantage or disadvantage for IMGs after certain, after a small period of everybody will be the same. And we will be seeing, and probably we will talk about 10 years from now, and I will tell you the same thing. We will be seeing the same amount of match that we are seeing right now. We know yeah. that IMGs is 59% match. Yes. I, so I, inclu- I saw that. So I brought up the statistic that it went up from 44% to 58, 59% or so. So if you think about IMGs as US citizen IMGs or non US citizen IMGs, both are 59%. If you oh, think of okay. non US IMGs, they went from 44 to 46%. So almost one out of two non-US IMGs, non-US citizen IMGs entered to the residency in the United States, uh, compared with uh, 59% that is the US citizen IMGs, that they go mainly to the Caribbean uh, schools, and then the US IMGs, the, sorry, the US medical graduates, uh, the match rate is around 97%. Wow. So basically, that thing will not change at all. I think that uh, what is going to happen is that they are going to restructure, and that's what I'm a little bit excited is like, let's see what we can do better. Let's don't think of the anxiety and they don't want IMG to come or, oh, they are taking the only objective part. No, let's think about what we can do better. And I think that this is opportunity even for all of us. If you have an idea of how to make this better, this is the time to get involved in organizations, to get involved in the process and just tell your idea because probably anyone that is listening to to this will have the solution. And that's the good thing about changes is that I don't know if 
at the end it will be bad and we have to go back again to step one score. Mm -hmm. But I have a hope that it will not be like that. I think that what we are expecting is that many brilliant people are going to start thinking, will come to with something impressive, and then we have a better a better process. Okay. Uh, all the things that I heard is the that uh, that there is this advantage in the economical because if you are in a better school, you will get more reference and more things than if you are in a in a in a US school that is not so so expensive or is not so famous but that's the thing that we don't want we want to do a holistic review we want to see each individual as as a person and not as a as Number. a score i know that it's difficult at this point to think about how but I can bet you that there are many people right now, and I give the example of OBGYM, that they are thinking the how. Yes. Dr. Correa, one specific question is, and one of the listeners is asking me, Dr. Correa, how we're going to be doing the transition process in between 2021? How do you think this is going to happen? I mean, we're just guessing into 2022. So what I'm trying to say I'm applying for the match happening in March 2022. As of January 1st, the test will be only a pass or fail. But if I took a step one in September 2021, will my score will be reported as a three? Do you think if I have a, have a low three-digit or a high three-digit, will I be filtered with a step one? Or those people, you know, What's going to happen? They have like fears of waiting a little longer until 22 comes along to take a step one. They want to take it now. What, what would you recommend? That transition process is kind of like the gray zone that we don't know what's going to happen and how they're going to approach this. What do you suspect is going to happen? Yeah. And that's that's a good question. It's like, well, I don't, as I mentioned, I don't have a magic ball to say what is going to happen. But what I'm most likely is going to happen is that the people that are in that area where some of them has pass and fail as some of them have score, yep. what is going to happen is that they are going to cut everybody in a pass fail because it will be too difficult to filter because one is pass fail and the other is, uh, is, is score. Cool. So uh, I think that what will happen is that... Uh, uh, they will use the pass fail to so if, if they I don't know if the if the score of the is to pass is one ninety five, they will use that cut off uh, and they, and put you as a pass fail. You wow. mentioned something about if you have to wait after twenty twenty two if you're so I don't think that that's that's the reason or that that should you teachers should think about that. What you should think is. You have to give your best in the exam. It doesn't matter if a pass or fail or it's a numeric score. You have to give your best in the exam. And this is for U.S. medical graduates and uh, for international medical graduates. You have now to because give it, the best effort to pass the exam, correct? You have to give your best effort to, yes, to pass the exam and... As, as it was as a numerical score. Yes. So even if you don't will, you will not get a score, you have to give the best uh, because you, you want 
to to become a physician, you want to treat good your patients. So this idea and that will that will happen. I, I'm sure this is the unintended consequences of doing a pass and fail exam is that people will start saying, oh, I don't have to study so much because it's just pass and fail and I can pass the exam. That should not be the, the thinking mindset. process. Yep. It should be, I have to give a hundred percent of me again, in even if it pass or fail. And something that uh, 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 that is important is that somebody asked me about uh, uh, if I think that now the passing score will change because now it's a pass or fail. And this is the way that the USMLE changed the passing score is very data driven. Certain amount of time, the statistician, the psychometrician meet and they determine that the bell curve is moving to the right, so they have to move the passing score a little bit. I yeah. expect that this will happen as it's happening every certain amount of times, usually every five to six years, that this will happen. But it doesn't mean that it will happen from now the passing score, I'm just saying an example, is 190, and when this pass and fail start happening, it will go to 220. No. What we have seen through the years is usually you move one or two points more, and it's just because people are studying more and multiple things are affecting the exam. So I expect that that will continue happening. That will not change. Just because of the pass or fail, that will not change. But that doesn't mean that it will jump 20 or 30 points more. So that's important to understand that, yes, it will change as it's changing right now. I think that the last change was in 2016 when they increased from 192 to 194, the pass uh, score. In my time, I think that the pass score was 190. I don't know if you remember what was the past score in your time. Got it. No, I don't remember. I will yeah. have one pull up my results, which I still have them on a file, but I don't have, I don't really remember what was the, the threshold back in my days. Correct. But if you see it, it changed and it changed because there is analysis of this the exam and then they determine that that will change. Many listeners have said, what is a passing score? I said, we, let's say it's 250, right? But we know that this, the, the mathematicians, the psychologists, the psycho and, and the psychologists, metrics, specialists at the USMLE will sit down and, and set a score and just kind of play with the standard variation, move it up or move it down. Is that what we expect as you just said it earlier then? So, yeah, so it's multiple components in a statistician world, but they get data from several years and they analyze as a bell curve how the all the examinees perform in the exam. And if the bell curve moves to the right, they have to move the passing score to the right. If yes. the bell curve moves to the left, that has not happened, but it can happen, they will have to move the passing score to the left in a bell curve. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a very complex process. And this gives me the opportunity to tell you a little bit about 
how a question become a question in final question in an in an exam in, in a USMLE exam. So when I was uh, studying for the USMLEs, I always remember that was what I was thinking in my mind is this is the worst exam that they can make <laughs> because I am so anxious. The only thing that they want to do to me is that I don't pass the exam, so uh -huh. I don't enter to the U.S. That was what right. I was thinking. And I say, who did this exam? It's just they, they are doing it for money. They are doing it for not making uh, an international medical graduate to come to the U.S. They wanted well, to, to trim the fat. Correct. So that was what I was thinking. I had the opportunity or God gave me the opportunity to become involved with the organization and be in the other side. And then I realized that things are not what I was thinking. To write a question for the USMLE, first of all, they assign you a set of topics that, that you have to write. Sometimes it's in your comfort zone, other times it's not. So you have okay. to read about the topic. Right, you know. For me, it takes an hour and a half to write one question because I need to think about how, like, a, a good question, the answer has to be things that are discriminatory one to another. So it takes a lot of time to write just one question. Everybody that writes questions are volunteers. They don't pay us. We just write questions. And then after that, you submit your question, that question go through an editorial process. So there is a standard on how a question should be written. They have certain things, uh, how the format of the question, the amount of wording of the question, all of that. So it goes to editor. The editor is not a, an, uh, a physician. The editor is, uh, is a person that knows how to write questions. And then he comes back to you with some suggestions. You review the suggestion, and if you think that it doesn't change the content, because you are the content expert, if it doesn't change the content, then it goes to a peer. Another person that peers with you, and that person review your question and make a suggestion or correction or not. After this, then it goes to a committee where all of the people that wrote questions sit down together and start reading each question. These people are from different backgrounds, not from the same area, these are from different backgrounds. If anyone in the committee doesn't understand your question, your question is deleted. Wow. If your question have any issues or, or somebody think that it's too difficult or too easy, your question is deleted. Let's say that your question passed and everybody in the committee has decided, okay, it's a good question. That question first is being tested. It goes to the test, but everybody knows that all the questions in the USMLEs are not scored. So there are questions that are just tested. Nobody knows which one, but some of them are just for being tested. Then that question comes with the statistics. And then the next meeting of the committee, they review the question from the prior year to see if the statistics are correct. 
and there are some statistics called P and RV that uh, is, is some complex statistic, but they, they analyze that. If when you come back again to the committee, your question have a good P and good RB, then finally it's accepted and then the question goes for scoring in the test. So it took approximately one and a half year to two years since you create your question until your questions make it to the tests. Wow, this is so, some serious information. Correct. So there's a lot of barriers where one question that is not well done will never make it to the test. It's like the same thing if people like politics in the U.S. Uh, there is how a bill become a law and a bill have to pass multiple committees in the House and in the Senate. And finally, that's the complete House and the complete Senate have to agree and then they have to be signed by the president. Well, it's the same process as writing a question. So it's not so easy. So then now that I'm on the other side, I really realized that really the NBME uh, or the USMLE didn't want to fail me. What they want to do is to ask me a question that is the minimal requirement that I needed to know as a physician or as a student at that time of, of my career. Because really, it takes a lot of volunteer people to write questions and it takes a lot of staff to correct the question and to analyze the question and the metrics and then to put it in the exam. Wow, this, this has been fantastic information. As we get close to, to wrap it up, is there any other few things that you think uh, we should know? Uh, probably one one more question that I might have for you be before we wrap it up. It's uh, somebody's asking me specifically if they you think it's necessary to take a step one before they present themselves to any clinical clerkship in the United States, and if it's important to have a, a great score before you get accepted, and how these uh, step one is being considered by some clerkship directors to take you in. So. Up to in this next two years, the step one will have a score. I think that uh, uh, it's not necessary. If you're a medical student in your country and you want to come to the U.S., because clerkship are a little bit different from observership. Clerkship are medical students in their countries that want to do um, rotations uh, in the U.S. as a medical student. Observership are most for physicians in their countries that want to do um, some rotations in the U.S. So you cannot be a student anymore because you already graduate. So the question is that if you have to take the steps, it's not mandatory. It depends also on the program that you are applying. Some programs in, in certain universities or certain programs in the U.S., they make you uh, take at least one exam before doing an observation or a clerkship. Other programs doesn't, uh, as an IMB, doesn't require you to have any of this. One of the things that I always said is that, first of all, you need to take a look at, uh, at the place where you want to go. For example, if your goal is coming to the U.S., yes. um, the first thing to do is let me experience a little bit if this is the system where I want to practice. 
So doing a clerkship or an observership is important because probably you don't like the system and then you decide not to come to the U.S. Probably you like the system and you decide to come. So independent of the program, I think that you should first take a look to see if that's what you're looking. And I can tell you my personal experience when I start all the process, I start all the process. I did a rotation in the U.S. I was in, I went into the research. I thought that it, really the U.S. was uh, the place that I wanted to go, come. Uh, I started my process. I did my exam. But I had the opportunity before I entered the residency to do a clinical epidemiology training in Canada. And really, I fell in love with the Canadian system. The big problem is I already had all my experience, all my steps, everything in the U.S. And I will not, uh, at that time, I didn't want to take another, all different exams and everything after suffering so much with the steps. But I realized that really, if you want to go to a place, first of all, you need to go and see the place. And yes. This means doing an observation and clerkship. And then uh, if you like it, you stay and you continue the process. If you don't like it, you don't. That's why I don't think that you should take any steps before doing an observership or a clerkship. And that will depend on the program that you are applying. If, they, if the program make a requirement that you have to take a step one or, or you have to have a score or, or something like that, well, you will have to, if you want to go to that program, you will have to follow that instruction. But there are many, many other programs. And both of us know, for example, the Harrington program. Mm -hmm. They didn't require it and they don't require right now to have any step to come and do a rotation. And you have experience in the U.S. So it depends on, on what you want. And, and if you want to do that, it's fine. But if not, find another program that doesn't require it. Wow. Well, Ricardo, you've been a wealth of knowledge. I am extremely happy, extremely thrilled, extremely satisfied with all the feedback that you have given us. I consider this like VIP, behind the scenes information for those ones that were anxious about getting to know what's next. I bet this episode is going to be listened by many. And I do know that you have a huge following on the Internet. I know you have a Twitter account. I don't know if you want to bring that up to our listeners so they can follow you and kind of tag along on your comments that you tweet back and forth uh, on a regular basis. I also wanted to inform everybody, as I said earlier today, that I really enjoyed the podcast that you recorded with our Spanish-speaking fellows uh, in Chile, right? Is where they're based? The poly... Polipotenciales? Um, uh, she, Sheila is in um, in Houston. She's a Venezuelan uh, physician. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, you so, did a fantastic job on that one too, and I listened to the whole thing. and And that's another resource for those of our listeners that want to probably get some good information that is 100% in Spanish. Yeah, I really thank you uh, for this opportunity. I, I think that uh, the main reason why I'm trying to do this in in multiple areas is because I want the IMG community to be calm and to decrease the anxiety. I know that every change costs this, but think about the positive that can come from this. Think about what 
every of us had mentioned recurrently mentioned the, the brilliant minds that can help shaping the future of the transition between un, uh, undergrad medical education and graduate medical education. This is the time that we have to make it better. The system was broken and this is the time that we have to make it better. So everybody, IMG, U.S. medical graduate, faculty, program director, deans, everybody now should get together and start thinking. If you have an idea, this is the time to express your idea because we have the opportunity right now to make things better. And I can tell you from my standpoint of view, the ideas that I have, I'm trying to make it work in the internal medicine community. You have to fight always because nobody was used to it. But if you have an idea, then just express it in the different areas that you are. If you are an IMG, you, there are many resources, for example, for uh, Hispanic or Latinx IMGs. The National Hispanic Medical Association is a good uh, resource. There is an IMG section where if you have an idea, you can join that organization and then you can express your idea at this time and then with them just work it out through change the system. If you're not Latinx, you can go to the American Medical Association, the ING governing the ING section, and then I imagine that the the, the the ING section will have a lot, a lot of comments and things and proposals. So the IMGs can be heard too as the U.S. medical graduates and the deans and the program director and everybody is, is, is being creative. Something that you mentioned is, yes, definitely I, 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 I would like to, to continue the conversation. And if anyone have an idea, they want me to go with that idea to the different things, I'm more than happy. As you mentioned, uh, they can uh, write me in the social media. Twitter is the easy one. And my Twitter is at Dr. Ricardo Correa, my first and last name. And then um, it's easier to write there. They can write to you and they and you can contact me and, and we can try to find. I think that now is the time to get together as an IMG community because probably... I don't know, but probably one of the options that they come with is an option that is not adequate for IMGs. So we have to be there. We have to open our mouth and we have to say, you know something, this is, we don't like it. This will be disadvantage for the IMGs. As in many of the committees that I'm involved, I'm the only IMG. And I always talk for the IMGs. So we need more people to be in leaderships in all of this organization and speak for the IMGs. And this is the time to do it correctly. There is power in numbers. Correct. And with that being said, uh, I want to thank you again. And we're going to close it up. I know that this is probably not the last, not only the first one, but not only the last time that I will probably We'll have the pleasure to bring you in. I know that you do this from the bottom of your heart, that there is no financial attachments here, but what you're doing is a huge educational 
experience for our listeners and for everybody, hopefully, that is listening to us across the world. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart from dedicating the last hour and a half of your time and one hour yesterday, so a total of two and a half hours to have this fantastic and amazing and energizing conversation. You're a wealth of knowledge, and it's fantastic to see a, a Latino that I feel proud of that is doing so well personally, professionally, and is so pleasant and so approachable. So I cannot thank you enough for being here, uh, Dr. Correa. And follow us at the website, www.fmg-imgcast.com. And please download me on iTunes. This will be available hopefully by the end of the week. Follow me on uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and many other platforms. I suspect that things are going to be dynamic and changing like always in medicine and anything that we do in life. So I suspect that within the next few months, we're going to have some updates and more questions are going to arise based on this. So feel free to email me at alonsojosorio at fmg-imgcast.com. And I'll be more than happy to send my questions to Dr. Correa or you can send them to me and we'll try to figure it out all together. So... The strength is in the numbers, and thank you for being part of this community. Dr. Correa, thank you from everybody across the world. Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity, and I really want to thank you for uh, your work, because uh, expanding the, the knowledge and trying to make everybody understand and doing all the podcasts and all the things that you do is contributing a lot to our community too so there's two ways to do it there's way that you are getting involved but there's also ways to spread the knowledge and 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 i really appreciate what you are doing very good thank you again doctor thank you so much doctor